We live in a moral universe that is governed by a good and righteous God. And because He is good, He must hate sin. And because He is righteous, He must punish sin. And for this reason, we trifle with sin at our eternal peril. Mankind's first sin drastically altered the outcome of human history, and our own sins may grievously alter the course of our lives. In a moral universe, the Bible teaches and we experience the fact that we reap what we sow. And if we have half a mind, we understand these things. But what we don't expect is that the Lord who hates and must punish sin is also a God of mercy and grace. Were He not gracious and merciful, life would be worse than dreary and we would be utterly hopeless. But the God of Christians is the Father of mercies. He proved this by punishing our sin in His Son, so He could be free to care for us as His beloved children. So we sing, Father, like He tends and spares us, well, our feeble frame He knows. Our Savior bore God's judicial wrath against us for our sin. Jesus cried from the cross, It is finished. We sing, Jesus paid it all. God's wrath, you see, is appeased by Jesus' blood, but we err seriously if we conclude that the cross pacifies God's fatherly anger against us for our sin. He must punish His sinning children. He loves us too much not to do so. His goodness and righteousness as our loving Heavenly Father demanded. God's fatherly discipline is not only retributive, it is also restorative. That is, those who learn by it. It justly inflicts pain for sin, and it graciously repairs the relationship broken by sin. Without pain, there can be no help, and without reconciliation, there can be no hope. God's fatherly chastening is intended to produce both. Jonah learned this lesson in spades. The penitent prophet also learned that God's discipline does not necessarily sideline sinning saints. In fact, chastening that is embraced, chastening that is improved, may in fact be the Lord's means of fitting a repentant believer for more effective future service. And it exhibits the truth that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And brethren, those all things is rather expansive. Those all things even include our sin. But here we may be guilty of a very serious mistake if we use the devil's logic by that conclusion that we can sin so that good may, we can do evil that good may come. God's overruling grace in no way excuses our sin or lessens its evil or ex exempts us from divine chastening. That God may use sin does not mean that He approves sin. But it does prove that His grace is greater than our sin. His purpose is for us. He will accomplish even though we may detour from the way of righteousness into the paths of disobedience and experience severe chastening from His loving hand.
These departures from God's revealed will are never good in themselves. In fact, they're always evil. But in the overruling providence of God, He may accomplish His gracious work in and through them. So let me again issue this warning. We must never do evil so that good may come. That is a devilish plan, and if it is practiced, it leads to a hellish end. Bless God that our sin does not prevent Him from carrying out His sovereign purposes. Indeed, He is able to bring good out of evil. Doesn't He prove that every time He saves a sinner like you and like me? He brought us out of evil, and by His grace, He's making us good. And His sovereign purposes, He continues to demonstrate in our sanctification and growth and grace and conformity into the image of His beloved Son. Our Heavenly Father enables us to mortify sin and to grow in the graces of His Spirit. Why? Because we have been saved by His Son. You see, He continually straightens us that we may walk in straight paths for righteousness' sake. And this the book of Jonah teaches us. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We finished chapters 1 and 2. We saw Jonah's commission in chapter 1. We saw his initial call and commission from God and his response in that chapter. The Jehovah's initial call and commission of Jonah was very clear and unmistakable in verses 1 and 2. We saw Jonah's reaction to God's unmistakable and clear call, that he rebelled against it. He ran away from it, thought he could get away from God. And then we saw God's response to Jonah's rebellion there in chapter 1. We saw his response to Jonah's flight. He tested Jonah with a seeming providential escape route. Jonah wanted to get away from God. He went down to Joppa. He wanted to get away as far as he could. He wanted to go to Tarshish. And there just happened to be a ship there that was going that way. And Jonah could have reasoned, well, maybe this isn't rebellion after all. There's a ship here I can get on and I can go. Well, he booked passage, got on the ship, went down in the hold, fell asleep. And then a violent storm arose. Jonah's slumbering through it in his sinful sleep. So God sends this violent storm to shake him and to wake him up. The captain of the ship goes down there to Jonah. And he arrests him with an alarming admonition. Our gods aren't helping Jonah. Maybe you will pray and your God will have mercy upon us. And then he comes up above. The sailors are wondering what's going on here. They realize that maybe someone here is at fault before God. And God is dealing with a whole crew because of one man's sin. And they cast lots and they find out that it's Jonah. This one that was downstairs sleeping is the one who brought this wrath from above. So they try to save Jonah's life after he tells them that he's the man. And the harder they rode, the harder the storm came. And so finally Jonah says, if you're going to cease the wind and calm the waves, you've got to throw me overboard. They said, no, we're not going to do that. And they rode harder and harder. The storm just got fiercer and fiercer. And so finally, reluctantly, they picked up Jonah and they threw him overboard. Then they appealed to God because of what they did, not wanting to be guilty of innocent blood. As soon as Jonah hit the water, the wind stopped, the sea became calm, and God appointed a great fish to come and to swallow Jonah. In chapter 2, we see God's woodshed for his runaway prophet. He brings Jonah to his knees. He's entombed there 
for three days. He's alone inside of the belly of a fish, but he's not alone because God is with him. There's no place that Jonah could run and escape from God. He found that out in the belly of a, of a fish. And so we see the imprisoned prophet in his prayer closet where he struggled between faith and doubt, wrestling with God. God wouldn't let him go. He wouldn't let God go. And it led him to a vow and to his triumphant confession at the end of Jonah, chapter 2, where he says, Salvation is of the Lord. And when he confessed that, that his deliverance had to come from God, God caused the fish to burp Jonah out onto dry land. And that brings us to chapter 3, to Jonah's recommissioning. And we're going to begin to ponder Jonah's recommissioning this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3 today on Jonah's return to his commission. We're going to look at two points before coming to some concluding application. Notice, first of all, Jonah's renewed charge in verses 1 and 2. Beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Now, notice with me several notable details about Jonah's recommissioning here from these words. Notice, first of all, the significant timing of Jonah's recommissioning. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Now. Now. Well, when is now? You know, when I read Jonah, I used to think that, and maybe this is the case, that he was recommissioned as soon as he was on the beach. Well, that, that may have happened. Could have happened while he was on his way to, or while he was at home back in Gath Heifer. Or it might have come when he was in Jerusalem, paying his vow to God. We're not told. But God met him somewhere, and he recalled him to his task. But more significantly than the place of the timing of Jonah's recommission, is the fact that it came after his harrowing preparation by God in the belly of the fish. You see, Jonah was not ready to preach in Nineveh. Not until after his experience inside of the great fish. You see, God had further education for Jonah in the midst of that salty seminary, which was the belly of a fish. Jonah had to come to himself, and he had to come back to God before he was ready to come to Nineveh. Notice, secondly, the medium of Jonah's recommissioning. It was the word of the Lord that came to him. Gee, even as it did in chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and God gives his commission. You see, Jonah received a clear, unambiguous communication from God's mind and will, even as at the first. You see, before Jonah ran from God's word, and now he embraces the word of God. Now he was prepared to preach the word of God. Notice thirdly, the divine person who issued Jonah's recommissioning. It was the Lord. It was Jehovah. Same as chapter 1 and verse 1. It wasn't a different God. It was the same God. The same God was using the same man for the same purpose. And that it was to preach the word to Nineveh. Jonah received his commissioning from his faithful covenant God. At the end of his chastening, 
by his loving Heavenly Father, even as we have read in Hebrews chapter 12. Jonah was to learn holiness and to enjoy the peaceable fruits of righteousness, but he wasn't ready until the Lord, his divine instructor, had prepared him. Notice, fourthly, obviously, the one who received the Lord's recommissioning, it was none other than Jonah. God didn't say, no, Jonah, I'm going to pick somebody else to do it. That can use you anymore. Brethren, how significant this is. God recommissions his failed prophet. The former runaway rebel, the petulant child, he is now a chastened, penitent, obedient son. And he's saying essentially, not my will any longer, but thine be done. Notice, fifthly, the unexpected circumstances in which Jonah received his commissioning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The second time. The second time. Brethren, God was not through with Jonah. We don't see the punished prophet washed up on the beach. No, he's deposited by God onto dry land from the mouth of this fish. Much less was Jonah washed up in the eyes of God. Severe discipline and serious prayer prepared Jonah for the work to which he had called him. He who was chastened is now comforted. Chastened but not cast off, Jonah would join his voice with a penitent to Jerusalem sometime in the future. Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 1. Then you, after Nebuchadnezzar's done with you, then you will say, after you have been chastened and ready to receive the grace of God, then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, for although thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou dost comfort me. And that's why Isaiah was commanded to comfort, O comfort the Israel of God. Jonah received comfort from the same one that chastened him. And so a chastened, comforted Jonah could now go forward with hope and joy to the work that God had called him. Sixthly, notice, and finally here, the ministerial goal of Jonah's recommissioning in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. We read in chapter 1 and verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now we're going to consider some of the implications of chapter 3 and verse 2, the proclamation which I'm going to tell you, God willing, next time we come to Jonah. But what I want us to see here, brethren, what the Holy Spirit wants us to see here, is that Jonah's failure was not final. The penitent prophet learned that Jehovah is a God of second chances. That is the God that we serve. So I've entitled this message, The God of Second Chances. So having seen Jonah's renewed charge, let us notice God's restored prophet. God's restored prophet. The beginning of verse 3. But I'd like us to look at chapter 1 and verse 3 because there's a before and after here. God had told Jonah to go to preach in Nineveh. Gave a very clear command. Verse 3, chapter 1. But, but, we must not miss the emphasis of the word but. 
There was an about face in Jonah. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. In contrast, the before with the after in chapter 3 and verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. No resistance, no rebellion. No, he, he changes his butt now to so. What you've said I will do. Where you've called, I will go. Notice the order of God's dealings with Jonah. He was first renewed in his relationship with the Lord, and then he was restored to God's service. You see, Jonah had to be brought from a posture of doubt and disobedience to renewed faith and obedience before he was qualified to serve the Lord. God had to deal with him first. He had to be prepared. He wasn't ready, as we've seen before. You see, Jonah had experienced firsthand salvation from the Lord. And this is no less true in our restoration to service as it is in our rescue from sin. We first must be tested and proved by God before we are ready for and restored to useful service. Repentance, you see, must come before recommission. We see this in the Bible. Israel in the wilderness had to learn this lesson. God commanded His people to enter the land. Moses is at their lead. Sends out spies. They see what's waiting for them. God's promise to Abraham was not overstated at all. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. They brought back some huge grapes to prove it. Ah, but they saw some people in the land that gave them pause. They said, yeah, these things are all true. But Abraham never said that there's giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. I don't know how they knew that. They never talked with them. But that's how they viewed themselves to the eyes of these people, or so they thought. They said, no. There was two that said, yes, we're going. Let's take the land, as been promised. Ah, but ten said, no. They came back and they brought a bad report. And they caused all the Israelites to shake in their sandals. So we're not going there. No way. We were better off in Egypt. Better that we were to die in the wilderness than to die at the hands of these giants. Let's go back to Egypt. Ah, oh, it was so easy back then. How we look back with selective memory at the past. How things, they seem to be good now, but if we looked at them as we should, they were difficult then. We're in a far better place now. Oh, they wanted it easy. They looked back on the past with rose-colored glasses. We're not going. So they rebelled and refused because of fear and unbelief. And after a night of petulant weeping there at Kadesh Barnea, the next day they got up and against God's prohibition, they willfully crossed into the land. God said, don't go, I'm not going with you. And they were humiliated. And a number of them were killed. God removed the fear from the people. God said, I'm not going with you. Don't, don't go without me. You're not going to prosper. They went ahead anyway, and they found out sadly that they shouldn't have gone. They weren't ready yet. It took 40 years of preparation before they were ready. Jonah likewise would have acted with sinful haste had he determined to take up his commission and go to Nineveh before God formally reinstated him. You see, insufficient was the chastening in the belly of the fish alone without a clear command from God to go. Jonah wasn't spit up on the land. He says, okay, I'm going to pick up where I left off. No, God had to deal with him. He had to give him a clear call. Jonah had to hear a word from God before he was authorized to go to Nineveh. And the command 
to go implied God's presence and assistance. The saints have always said, God, if you don't go with me, I don't want to go. But if you will go with me, we as Jacob will do exploits. Who can stop us when you're with us? You see, if we don't go at God's bidding, we won't have His blessing. If we've experienced God's chastening hand upon us, we're not prepared to move forward in the Christian life until we have learned the lessons those afflictions are intended to teach us. Peter wasn't ready to return to his place as leader of the apostles and feeder of Christ's sheep until the Lord restored him after his fall in repentance. Jesus requires a demonstration of our repentance before he restores us to his service. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says, God looks upon men when he has afflicted them and has delivered them out of their affliction to see whether they will mend of that fault, particularly for which they were corrected. And therefore, in that thing, we are concerned to see to it that we did not receive the grace of God in vain, neither in the correction nor in the deliverance, for both are designed to be a means of grace. The chastening and the deliverance. But have we learned what we should learn through it? Jonah's recommission illustrates an important fact about God's wise and sovereign dealings with us. You know, the Lord... He could have graciously forgiven Jonah's sin and justly removed him from his prophetic office. But he didn't. You see, serious sins that God graciously forgives may yet leave lifelong scars, alter the course of our lives, perhaps for a time and maybe for all time. Think about mistakes that you've made in the past you still have scars, maybe even scabs. You may be healed, but the wounds are yet visible. God must see clear evidence of repentance and reformation before He will return us to our former service and usefulness, should He choose to. And brethren, the scars that we bear remind us of God's chastening and of His mercy. Listen to Mr. Blakey. Jonah's rebellion had had a twofold effect on his relations to God. It broke his personal fellowship with Him and suspended his official function as a prophet. God's grace restored him both personally and officially, as afterwards in the case of Peter. But as in this case, the restoration of the first did not necessarily include that of the second. Servants of God who have fallen need a second call to public service. It needs to be shown that God trusts them with His work again. It is natural for ministers who have been publicly dealt with and censured to desire to be restored. But this cannot be rightly done without some token that God again calls them. Well, God's severe discipline worked its gracious purpose in Jonah. The Lord beheld favorable Changes that indicated that the former rebel, rebel had been subdued by his chastening and was now ready to be recommissioned. We behold in Jonah clear changes in heart and life. Consider chapter 1. He goes from revolting against God there to submission to His will in chapter 3. From being prayerless in chapter 1, there's no indication that even after being exhorted, Jonah prayed. Ah, but he went from prayerlessness to prayerfulness in chapter 2. 
And then he went from serving self in chapter 1. He just wanted what Jonah wanted. He didn't want what God wanted. He didn't want what the Ninevites needed. So he goes from serving self in chapter 1 to serving God and serving others in chapter 3. Because he bore these fruits of repentance, the Lord restored him both to his personal favor and to his prophetic ministry. But brethren, perhaps looking ahead a little bit further in Jonah, hear a warning. This isn't the end of Jonah's story. A further dark chapter in his history awaits us after his ministry in Nineveh. With all the bright indications of his change of heart, we are reminded from Jonah's story that we need God's chastening continually, that it's never finished in our lives. We may get a second wind and run in the race that has been set before us, and yet later stumble and need further correction. And brethren, it cannot but be so this side of glory. Each one of us is a work in progress. All of us continue to sin, and therefore all of us need continually to receive God's chastening grace. Some of us, quite frankly, are slow learners. Perfect conformity to the likeness of Christ will not happen under this sun. Our race is a marathon, and God's work in us doesn't afford Him a moment's rest. We, like Jonah, possess areas of defect and deficiency that continually require God's file in his furnace. And as long as we find ourselves returning to Jonah 1 and verse 3, however minor our deviation from God's revealed will, we will need his correcting hand. Our storm and our fish surely will differ from Jonah's experience, but our loving Heavenly Father will use whatever means he deems necessary to bring us back to himself Such are the claims of His love upon His wandering children. Revelation chapter 3, in verse 19, Jesus said to one of the seven churches, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Let my chastening do its perfect work. Repent. Be restored. So we, re- we prove our repentance genuine when we cha- exchange our but in chapter 1 and verse 3 to a so in chapter 3 and verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee. Chapter 3 and verse 3. So Jonah arose and went. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance with these words. Repentance unto life, and I say every repentance afterwards in the midst of life. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, he doesn't excuse, he doesn't blame shift, he doesn't point to others, he says, I'm the man. Out of a true sense of his sin, And you see there's grace in repentance. The gospel is implied in repentance. And apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Not just a true sense of his sin, but also apprehending the mercy of God in Christ. Doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. So it's not just a change of mind, it's a change of life. With full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Where there's a change of heart without a change of life, there's not true repentance. Hugh Martin comments on the evidences of Jonah's repentance. 
in the present case, Jonah would resume his commission with a new obedience, with a meekness, a faith, a courage, to all of which his punishment and pardon had been the signal means of disciplining him. He would resume his work and mission with another spirit. First, as a sinful man whose sin had been eminently forgiven. Second, as a prayerful man whose prayer had been eminently answered. And finally, as an afflicted man whose affliction had been eminently blessed. That book is still in print. I pick it up and read it. It'll do your soul good. You see, as a forgiven sinner and as a answered prayer and as one who'd learned blessing by affliction, Jonah could now engage in his difficult ministry in Nineveh. The man was ready. And God willing, we'll see that next time. But I come to some concluding lessons this morning. Three, first of all, lessons about obedience and discipline. First of all, obedience to the Lord's will does not permit debate or delay. We don't argue with God. We do what He says. We don't say, well, maybe later... God says, now. We must unquestionably regard God's word as our rule and obedience as our duty. Period. Full stop. This means that disobedience is backtalk to God. Because he's saying do and I'm saying don't. And here he's saying don't and I say do. And brethren, so is delayed obedience. The old Puritan Thomas Adams puts it this way. Imagine the runner in a race. He says, true obedience has no lead at its heels. Now we throw off every weight and whatever encumbers us and we run the race that is set before us with endurance. Furthermore, instant cheerful obedience to difficult duties we know it by experience, is always easiest. Disobedience, delayed obedience, always gets us in trouble. It makes matters worse. It doesn't help things. Furthermore, under this point, expect God's firm but loving chastening when you disobey His commands. Understand that God is not an ogre in heaven who gives you commands to rain on your parade, to make your life unhappy. No, His commandments are holy, just, and good. They are good commands that come from a good God for a good purpose. And happy are those who do them. I'm afraid some Christians... They enter the Christian life with an ogre God, and that ogre is still barking at them behind them. That's not the God who's above them. He commands you out of love, and He only commands what is good for you and what will bring you happiness. In fact, he loves you too much to continue to rebel against him and not realize these gracious purposes that he has for you. Disobedience always harms. It never helps. When did you ever sin and were the better for it? Truly. Brethren, we know this by personal experience. And remember, too, that you show your love for God by your obedience to Him. What did our Lord Jesus say on more than one occasion? If you love me, you will what? You'll keep my commandments. You see, obedience is the language of love. 
What does your life, what does my life say about the fervency of our love? And there's a word here to parents and to children by way of application. Parents, instill in your children the knowledge of the necessary relationship between your love for them and your duty to discipline them. Proverbs 13 and verse 24. He who spares his rod... Well, today we would say, yeah, he... He loves his son. That seems to be the ethos amongst a lot of modern Christians. He who spares his rod loves... No, that's not what the Bible says. He who spares his rod hates his son. But he who disciplines him diligently or early loves him. Proverbs 19 and verse 18... Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. And if you don't discipline your son, you might as well desire his death, because you're enabling him to run down the wide road that leads to destruction. Furthermore, teach your children also the relationship of their love for you and their obedience to you. You're disciplining them as God's ruler in your home. You are God's vice regent within your home. You give them just commands. They are required to give obedience to just commands. We could go a lot farther. I could qualify this to death, but I want you to get the main thrust of this. You don't want them just to respect you. You want them to love you and explain why you're disciplining them. Mommy, Daddy loves you too much not to discipline you. We want to see you share in God's holiness. We want to see you enjoy the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And in this fallen world, with our sinful nature, it can't come any other way than by reproof and by the rod. If we weren't born sinners, we wouldn't need it. But last time I checked, everyone born under the sun is yet a sinner and a rebel against God. Even your own dear children. And let me speak to you children. Be assured that your parents' principled discipline proves their love for you. They're showing that they love you by disciplining you. They may say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And when I was a kid, I thought that was a joke. But now as I've gotten older, I understand. No one likes to inflict pain upon someone, but pain brings later pleasure. You see, your parents want you to grow up to be godly, responsible, mature adults. And without discipline... That ain't going to happen. Kids aren't like weebles. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. No. We're not self-correcting. You show your love for them at a tender age by gladly submitting to their authority by saying, yes, mom, yes, dad. Secondly, lessons about discipline and restoration. Though God's discipline of His people is always punitive and painful, God's goal is ever restorative. It's always to renewed fellowship with Him and often to restored service of Him. Brethren, let me say it again. Jehovah is a God of second chances. He restored Jonah to himself, and he gave him a second chance for service. And we meet with many other illustrations of this in the Bible, don't we? Take Jacob, for instance. He was a deceiver. He tricked his brother out of his birthright. 
The Lord disciplined the young deceiver at the hand of a more accomplished trickster uncle who deceived him and changed his wages ten times and cheated him, as it were, out of several years of his life. And on returning to his home, the Lord wrestled with Jacob. He subdued him with a stroke that crippled his thigh and subdued his rebel spirit. And Jacob's limp reminded him to his dying day that Jehovah is a God of second chances. David started out well. A godly young man chosen by God to rule over Israel as one he described as a man after his own heart. But over time, David allowed his heart to become cold and callous. And when he should have been out with his armies leading them into battle, he stayed home and sinned grievously by committing adultery and murder. But God wasn't done with David yet. No, he wasn't done with David until his dying day. And though David's sin was great, God restored the fallen king, and yet he disciplined him severely by the hand of his rebel son. David, David's later prayer exhibited the brokenness of a man humbled under the mighty and gracious hand of God. Psalm 51, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. God answered that prayer. David, David's soul was revived by God. And God kept his promise to chasten him and his seed in covenant faithfulness. Psalm 89 Verse 32, I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. God's speaking to David and to all of those born in the Davidic dynasty down to the perfect son of David. And I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. And he didn't. David, as a restored sinner, served God as the God of second chances all down to the end of his days. Peter's pride led him to a miserable fall. And even after being warned, he denied his Lord three times, finally with fearful curses. I don't know the man. And he called down, as it were, judgment upon himself as if he should be judged. If he did know him, he said, I don't know him. A crowing rooster became Peter's big fish that brought him to his knees. And I dare say he didn't hear a crowing rooster after that the same way. Jesus restored his fallen servant, commanding him to feed his sheep. And by his grace, making him a great evangelist and leader of the early church. You see, Peter found that the Lord his God was a God of second chances. Finally, there's a lesson about repentance and forgiveness. Speak here to non-Christians. You say, well, you're talking to Christians here that have fallen and God has restored. Well, what about me? Can you be a God of first chances? Well, yes, he is. He was a God of first chances to those whom he was a God of second chances. He calls you to come to him. You who are weary and heavy laden, trying to work out your salvation. You can't have a good conscience because you know you can't do whatever God requires to be pleasing to Him. You need a perfect sacrifice. You need a perfect Savior. God forgives repentant sinners. 
Jesus forgave the repentant woman who then washed his feet with her tears. He forgave repentant Corinthians of purple sins who became new creatures in Christ who afterward lived radically changed, holy, hopeful lives. But such were some of you after giving that whole litany of characteristic sins of the Corinthians. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of God and Jesus Christ and by by His Spirit. You see, you're in the same boat that all of us are in. Whether we're saved sinners or whether we haven't been saved, we're still sinners, but you need to be saved by grace. There is forgiveness with God that He may be feared. You'll never fear God truly. You'll never worship Him as He requires through Jesus Christ until you see your sin. And you say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And when you get serious with God, He will get serious with you, and He will save you for now and forever, for time and for eternity. Here in this life and in the life to come, you will be acquitted. You will, your sin will be canceled. You'll be a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And through all the chastening that you're going to experience as a Christian, there comes a day when you'll be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. You see, for you, no matter what waits you between here and glory, the best is yet to come in this life and then forever. Oh, may God open your heart to receive Jesus Christ this day. And so that you can say, this God has delivered me. He's been the God of first chances. He will be the God of second chances. As long as I live, my eyes will be upon him, the author and the finisher of my faith. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would hear our prayers this morning. We pray that you would speak, even as we prayed earlier, that you would speak words of life to dead sinners, and you would bring them out of the grave of their sin into the light and life which belongs to those who are in Christ. And for those who are your people, build them up in the most holy faith, whatever chastening they have experienced, are experiencing, and will experience, that you would improve these things to their growth in grace and conformity to the image of him who was a sinless son who yet learned obedience to the things that he suffered. So Lord, hear us through him. Magnify your mercy in this place on this day that all glory will redound to your merciful name. For we pray this In Jesus' name, amen.